The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, stop tooting your own vuvuzela and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 572 with guest Clemens Vasters, recorded live at the Norwegian Developers Conference, Thursday, June 17th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man who has a new lease on life, but they keep raising his electric bill. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. This is Carl and Richard, and we're here again at the NDC, the Norwegian Developers Conference 2010 in Oslo, Norway. You played up a storm last night, Mr. Franklin. Uh, well, I wouldn't say I played up a storm, but I did okay. Uh, you're, up, you're up there on stage with your guitar, and you, you had the crowd. They loved you. Yeah, well, okay. So anyway. I would like to point out that you did open with Norwegian wood, and we are in Norway. Yeah, it's appropriate, don't you think? That was a little cliche, actually. <laughs> I, I don't know. I didn't do it just like John Lennon. I think I did it a little bit differently. Threw a little Carl Franklin spin in there. That's not why we're here to talk, though. We're here talking with Clemens Vasters. Hi, Clemens. Hello. How are you? Uh, I'm doing Okay. Used to be an RD, went to work for Microsoft, working on connected systems yes. and service bus yes. and all that stuff. What's new in your life? Uh, in the life my, of- my daughter's going to be three in, uh, next week. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> um, yeah, otherwise I'm working on the Windows Azure App Fabric service bus. That's what we're calling it these days? That, yes. Well, we are still calling it the Windows Azure Platform App Fabric Service Bus. Okay, because that name wasn't long enough. Yeah, I don't even know what the acronym would be. Yeah, it would be terrible. Yeah, but I think now the name is getting to be Windows Azure App Fabric Service Bus, so we're losing the platform in the middle. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we actually got them got the marketing people down by one word. If you could add with a twist on the end, that would be great. Yes, yeah. that would be yeah, great. It'd be a little higher higher class. So, how did tell us about the history of the Service Bus? Um, service Bus started as an incubation project right after um, 
Indigo shipped, so the Windows Communication Foundation uh, 3. Right. Um, at that time, Dennis Pilarinos and David Wartendike, um, two guys uh, who um, were in the WCF team, uh, Dennis as a PM, David Wartendike as one of the core developers and architects of the channel model inside of WCF, um, started a little, little incubation driven by John Shushak, who's a technical fellow inside of Microsoft, meanwhile, um, where they started to build a little relay for WCF services and did that and then started running a public service under uh, Dennis' desk, really. Uh, Just a, on a machine under a desk. Yeah, so they had literally had the machine under a desk <laughs> and then they had a tap, uh, which means that's a public IP address that goes into uh, you know someone's office. Right. And then um, they did that for a little while and that um, was release one and two. And then... Um, when did you get involved? I got involved... Um, probably yeah, a year a year after they started. Okay, and this now was it then the .NET service bus. That was BizTalk Services. BizTalk Services, yes, that's right. That was the name that confused everybody. BizTalk Services got nothing to do with BizTalk. That's right. That's right. So it was BizTalk Services as as a kind of as a test how flex how flexible and how uh, elastic the BizTalk brand would be for all kinds of other things. Right. Turned out, yeah, not at all. <laughs> there is only one BizTalk. W- w- it wasn't very yes. <laughs> And then, um, <laughs> yes, and then it turned into .NET services, right? Eventually, uh, with um, PDC OA. And when it was .NET services, it reminded me of Com Plus, right? And now it was a basically a set of tooling around .NET that was going to do useful things for you. So I, I understood that. I've, I've seen comfort, even if I wasn't using it, I felt comfortable at that moment. Yes, and then and then then around came the the branding police and said. Everything needs to look the same, and therefore we're now Windows Azure App Fabric Service Bus. And it was it it was it is an enterprise service bus, is it not? It's I a, mean that it, term was thrown around a lot. Yeah, so it's an internet service bus. It's, service bus generally is a pattern, right? Yes. And the the way we think about this is, um, you have connectivity, you have naming, you have discovery. That's kind of the core capabilities, and you have stuff sitting off the side of it, mm-hmm. um, which may or may not be in an enterprise service bus. Stuff like transformation and filtering and pubs up and all kinds of additional capabilities that come to that. But and the core of a bus is you plug stuff into it. Stuff. That's stuff. the German. Yes. <laughs> yes. W- however you want to interpret what I just said. Yeah, okay. Um, and you, you plug stuff into it, you, you're able to reach it. Yeah. And you're able to reach it because you can call it by its name. Right. So there's a no- notion of name. You can find it when it shows up and you can see when it goes away. It's about routing, really, it, isn't it? it? Well, this part of it is routing, but it's, 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 it's naming discovery and, ha- and how to get to it. So routing is part of that. Yeah. I mean, that's, isn't the fundamental job that a bus does is routes. When I think about a bus in the audio world, it's a, it's a way to route yeah. audio signals from disparate points yes. to one place. And then we can, from that bus, go out to another yeah, and place. That's, and that's what service bus effectively does. Yeah. You have um, you have services that live in all kinds of different places. They may be sitting on a device. They may be sitting on a, on a notebook. They may be sitting in a data center. They mm. may be sitting on, in someone's server room um, or under someone's desk. And you want to build a composite application right. that um, federates across all those different services and does useful things. Mm. Um, useful things in the sense you have a cloud application. And I just talked to a customer here about this. So they have a they have a cloud application. That cloud application has a counterpart on premise. So they built um, applications for small businesses. 
Mm-hmm. So they have a SaaS version of this, and then they have a local version of this. And what they do with that is effectively they keep stock in um, in stores and do counting and do th- things like this. So the, a store can start out running it all remotely off of their SaaS service and then or SaaS product, and then eventually pull it in house if they want to. Well, the, the the scenario that they have is they have an, have the solution for retail stores, mm-hmm. but the retail store will actually keep their stock local, and it's it's effectively the, the cashier. The, the, the cashiers run through, um, and the, the charging, local chargings all run through the system. Right. So they keep their stock in there, but they also want to have a little e-commerce experience. So they're hosting the e-commerce sites. Okay. So they have the catalog that's being kind of synchronized up to the, up to the, the hosted site. Mm-hmm. But then once you get down to, yes, I want to have this product, you go to that product, then you actually need, want to know how much do they actually have of those. Yeah. Like well, what store is it at? Kind what of thing. store is it at? Or if it gets shipped, Know, whether they still have ha- still have any in stock, right? So it would be very useful if the website could actually go and reach into the store to right. see, you know, do they still have one or two of those? So you can and actually. That's get very them. service busy to yeah, me. Yeah, and yeah, and so service bus can actually go and bridge that gap while reaching into the store, getting that number out, and then showing you on the website. And so another thing I think of a bus as being useful for is getting around firewall limitations. Yeah, and that's for that, right? Yeah. So you have the store, and the store sits in a strip mall right. somewhere, and the only connectivity they have is some local, whatever local uh, business DSL they have, right. which means, or let's let's make it even worse, let's say they're connected through my, WiMAX, or they're connected through 3G, mm. right? Mm. Uh, which means they don't have a public IP address. Right, yeah, no, no no controllable IP address. Almost certainly poor filtered in some respect. Yes. So uh, the simpler the connection, the better. Yeah, and and so how do you actually reach into the application that sits on site and actually sits on that data you like to have for this? So you go, so you go through the bus. That way the bus has particular access behind the firewall to a particular resource and then exposes only the things that... Yes. Yeah. You so what we do, what we do with service buses, we effectively take the um, re- reverse the the direction of connectivity, right? By uh, because there's no magic, right? We yeah. we create a listener that makes an outbound connection. Um, we're using some tricks to make the outbound connection r- work really well, even in adverse under adverse conditions, right? And then we listen on your behalf up on service bus, and if you get messages, we route them to you. So the the store ultimately is maintaining a connection to some point. That allows the other uh, other uh, sites to communicate back. That's to right, them. exactly. So I mean, that's the key thing here is when you're in those sort of tenuous connection conditions, it's up to the that destination point to maintain a connection outward. Yes, to be able to correct. get its stuff. And and our, the framework that we deliver as part of the, the on-premise bits of Service Bus um, is very aggressive in just keeping the keeping the connection up. But by, by that same token, I guess the key thing in make, making a bus useful is being tolerant to the fact that those stores are dropping out and coming back every so often. Absolutely, absolutely. So we're we're all about the connection. That part of service bus is about the connection management. But it means that on an e-commerce site, for example, when you go and say, "Hey, I want to find out what store these products are in," you may not get every store reporting at that particular point. And the app is just going to absorb that. The bus is tolerant to that it, sort of thing. It it has to, right? Mm-hmm. Every application that is, um, every federated application that works with components that are far apart uh, needs to deal with the fact that stuff with may break. Unstable connectivity. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest issue f- as a developer we run into is that, you know, when we test, we test on these nice short LAN wires against gigabit switches that work every day, every time, that's all right. the time. And we forget that when we throw this thing out into the wild, the connectivity is just not that good. 
I mean, how many apps just go berserk when you throw them across a 3G connection that's coming and going constantly? Do you guys could, work with any kind of bandwidth chokers? Uh, we can, we work uh, under, so I can, I can still make a service bus connection work. So an inbound, inbound connectivity over, um, 2G when I have, um, mm. when I'm far away from the radio mast. Yeah. So I, I can still make that work. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, whose RAD controls outperform all others. Are you experiencing performance hits when handling millions of records with your Silverlight grid? Have you been frustrated by the amount of XAML code it takes to create a control template? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your app performance. And of course, there's no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building RAD controls for Silverlight, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution. Through UI and data virtualization, data sampling, and content recycling, RAD controls help you deliver unbeatable performance with your Silverlight apps. You can check out Telerik Silverlight Grid handling 50 million cells as a piece of cake or RAD chart working seamlessly with a million records. Just go to Telerik.com slash Silverlight slash performance for details. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. They truly make this show possible. And um, so why App Fabric Service Bus? Why, why Azure Service Bus? Yeah, why because, why okay. are we getting that moniker now? So the, the connect, these, that particular connectivity, so take an arbitrary internet connection that you may have and being able to host a public service on it, mm-hmm that is reachable from anywhere, that's a unique capability of Service Bus. Yeah. You, you just don't get that anywhere, of, of the Windows Azure App Fabric Service Bus. Right. So Windows Azure App Fabric Service Bus, the thing that we build, is an infrastructure that, that creates that connectivity and sits as an application effectively on top of Windows Azure. Right. I guess, I guess what I mean is that this is now in the cloud, and yes. is there any option to run that ourselves? I mean... What if we want to implement our own service bus that's not on top of Azure that's running in our data centers? So the thing, there's two answers to that. So the thing that we do right now is um, we give you internet scope and scale connectivity. Mm -hmm. And that kind of only makes sense to have that in the, uh, uh, up in the cloud. The second is we have also have a programming model experience. So we have a namespace and you can go and, and hook things into a namespace and with that have very easily, easy discoverability. Um, for for endpoints that belong to a certain application, and you don't need you don't deal with host names, but you rather deal with uh, endpoints. That's something that's useful as a programming model, and people like it. Right. When we talk to. I guess a question here is: Can I? Yes. Is the, does the .NET service bus still exist in that somewhere? Yeah. So the question is: the question is, Windows Azure is is, is Windows Server App Fabric getting the capability of the service bus? Mm. Yeah. Right? Do are we going to get a a version of Service right. Bus that actually runs doesn't require Azure. symmetrically across both? Yeah, that would be great. L- let me let me let me. How do I say that right? Okay, so being from Microsoft, I have nothing to announce. Right, but <laughs> <laughs> I love this job. <laughs> that would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Yeah. So let let me let me let me try. Um. As of um, just roughly eight, ten weeks ago, mm-hmm. 
the Windows Server App Fabric team and the Windows Azure App Fabric team are now reporting to the same general manager. Right. So this is like back in April or so this yeah, happened? Yeah, right. It would be usually surprising if there weren't synergy effects across those teams by that very fact of the reorganization. Wow. As said, I have nothing to announce. <laughs> Oh, Clemens, you've gotten so good at this in such a short <laughs> amount of time. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Well, just it saying. usually takes years and years for people to speak like that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm there for four years, so. It's been long enough. No, it's, it's, Those it's, implants have grown in nicely. No, no, you, no, but when we go to work every Monday, you, we, we first go through brainwash right. and building, uh, 64 and then. <laughs> then you go back to your office. And then we go back to the office, yes. That's awesome. Well, I mean, the, the interesting angle on this is the the coupling to Azure does lend itself certain capabilities. You're you're always in that situation of I have these frail connection points that are all I want to make part of the bus. What's my hub? And and you're basically telling me today that's Azure. They're, that is the way you well, do it. It if, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense in the cloud. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> the the way I can see that evolving. I said I have nothing to announce, but mm-hmm. let me let me just speculate a little bit. Right. Um, I can see you having a service bus that is very much like the the thing we have right now. You have a namespace for an application, right. and you have that mostly local. So you have, let's say, you have an application that sits on uh, that sits entirely within a local area network, mm-hmm. and you just federate across all those different components that sit in your server room. Right. And then you start mapping things from the outside world into that space, that your local space kind of maps into logically maps into the global space right. in a very natural way. Well, this, this feels good to me architecturally that when I need to open a second data center, I don't have to re-architect my app, right? I can ship pieces off and the bus is just going to serve across a dedicated connection or an internet to VFDN, exactly right. however I yes. want to do it. And we have, we have customers who we talk to who actually like the, um, who would have the capability to just open up the holes in their firewalls easily, right? right? Who have massive, who have massive numbers of IP addresses mm-hmm. and who could, who could easily host, but who like the, the, the fact that we can create them a flat surface. Right. Sort of, of, of names uh, for their services who just for that re- very reason go and just hook into service bus, um, because we give them such a clean, clean surface for it. Right. You just don't, you, why run that plumbing when you don't have to? Yes. So can we shift gears here a little bit and talk about, uh, ISVs and Azure? Yes. You have yes. some uh, some thoughts on this? Yeah, so I'm in ISV and there's big bad Azure coming for me. That's right. Yeah. Um so this is the last workday for me on a 7 week tour um with a little bit of a break in Seattle. Um where I've been through Asia, um specifically in uh, Singapore and Kuala Lumpur in, in the Philippines and in Korea. Yeah. And then I've been in Slovenia and then I've been in New Orleans. You went to New Orleans. Yeah, yes. saw you there. And then I've been um here in Oslo. When's the last talking, time you saw your baby? Um in Germany at a short <laughs> stopover after <laughs> Slovenia. Nice. And I'm going to I'm going to see her in on on Sunday mall. I'm all excited about that. Yeah, we're, soon we'll all be home. Yes, that w- that's going to be great. So you did this amazing tour, went yeah. to lots of folks, and you were touching ISVs? Yeah, so I, I've been talking to like 30 different ISV wow. customers um, in you know, meetings from an hour to two hours and just getting their their impressions, ideas, plans for, for what they want to do with the cloud in general, not, not only Windows Azure, but really how they look at it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the impression that I'm getting is that effectively in every vertical you can look at that an ISV that I that there's competition amongst ISVs. Someone is going to make a move, and if someone's going to move to make a move to build a SaaS solution, right? And whoever is moving to build the SaaS solution is going to have a big advantage, right? And they might even just start cleaning up the space. The way and so as I've been talking to people, there was kind of a few patterns that were coming around. Um, the one is um, how it changes really the way you do business or you can do business as an ISV. Mm -hmm. Today, um, when we talk about business ISVs, not people who are selling the thirty nine ninety five app. No, right? this is a monthly bill kind of ISV. Yeah, so this is the, the, the monthly bill ISV. The, the way the business works is you have the, the lump sum payment, license payment for the, new, for the big new version. Right. Or the initial lump sum, and then you have this this monthly maintenance fee, like right. the lifeline of the ISV, mm -hmm. um, where really the, the 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 maintenance and the support and all this is paid for. Right. Um, so that's a model that that very many ISVs have, um, and these ISVs, when they sell software to their customers on premise, um, create some risk for their customers because. To run an application or a fairly complex ISV solution, well, they need to make room on some iron or they need to go and buy a new hardware right. to support it. Mm -hmm. And then with that, they also need to have server software to run it. They need to buy SQL server. They probably need to buy BizTalk server. They need to buy a lot of software that supports it. Mm -hmm. So that's easily several $10,000 of, of upfront investment, capital yes. investment, to just test the software or then to run it. So that's, that's significant risk. There's also... In addition to the maintenance fee that the ISV charges, there's a kind of operation expenses that the that the customer has mm -hmm. for just keeping that alive. Yeah, well, right? they end up with an expert in the connection to the company. You know, like it's a chunk of somebody's job to deal with a problem. Exactly. So to maintain the hardware, there's the, they need to pay. The minimal thing is they need to pay for power and network and all those. But things. most of most of these ISVs have no doubt already invested lots and lots of money in these data centers and, and all of these costs. Yeah, you know, but, if you, but if you're a traditional, a traditional on-premise ISV, mm -hmm. you, most, you very often just don't deal with that. You, you write operations manuals, yeah. and then the customer deals with it. Right. Customer's running the hardware. Yeah, the customer's this running is the a little hardware. old school today, that, that method, but I mean, there's still lots of companies doing this. Yeah, there's plenty of customer yeah. companies still doing that. That, that. Ultimately, the customer owns all this gear, has to maintain it, That's and right. the ISV only run, you know, delivers the software. So, so the ISVs who are already doing SaaS, and there's a bunch of them, um, but not necessarily many, um, in very, in, like, in banking, for instance. If you're a banking ISV and mm -hmm. you are selling front office systems to banks, you're not operating any of it. No, the bank needs to run their own gear. They're quite, quite diligent about that. It's a part, part of their business. That's right. So I can come back to that point in a moment. But mm -hmm. so, so that's the kind of setup. What the ISVs who move into SaaS space are after is to, first of all, get rid of the risk of the customer um, having to acquire all that gear. Right. And all the, the months of agony that everyone has getting everything up and running properly. And the right. banks are going to be okay with moving all their stuff well, into well, the cloud? Let's, go back to that. let's get back to yeah. that point in a moment. And then they want, also want to have a chunk of the operations money that the, that the customer currently pays to... to internally. Internally. Mm -hmm. They now want to get a chunk of that operations money. They want to run the, the applications for themselves. Now, there's interesting economics here. Um, one, one scenario that I learned about here in, in Norway is that IT operations are 
are um, tax are taxable, right? But certain business transactions, banking transactions, other uh, other transactions are not trans hmm. are not taxable. Hmm. Interesting. So, so there's a percentage savings right off the bat here. Yeah. So you could. So depending what your tax situation is, for instance, in whatever country you're in. Uh, it might be that you can offer business services and you offer business service on a per transaction basis, on a per seat basis or whatever. You don't talk about CPU cycles. You don't talk about storage. You don't talk about any of those things. Right. You offer your SaaS solution on a, on something that makes sense for the business. Right. And then it may actually land you, as I learned here in some scenarios, actually land you as a, at a, at a, at a tax advantage. The biggest thing I found with SaaS, I mean, I appreciate the cost savings and how you can break those things out. But more than anything, I find that people just don't have Companies don't have the talent necessary to run that infrastructure. Yes. They don't want to hire it. They don't know how to hire it. Like that's, it's not even about the money. It's the people that yes. they can't get. So, but let's, well, even let's, if they could get them, it's about the money. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's say the ISV now moves to a model where they operate the software. So Microsoft operates the operating system. If right. you, if you go into a cloud model, Microsoft operates the hardware and Microsoft operates the, the operating system. So this is moving from the traditional SaaS into the cloud SaaS model. Cloud SaaS. Which is different. Right. So now the, 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 the ISV builds the software and they're operating the application mm-hmm. that sits on top of it. And they're now charging a, a reasonable operations fee that may be anchored on something that actually makes sense to the business. Right. And best is anchored on something that makes sense to the business. Now comes the interesting play. The operations income is something that is, is reasonable for the business mm-hmm. and that offers them a, a good price point that possibly hopefully is much much lower than what they would pay if they would run all that stuff on site with their own with their own personnel well, more importantly granular right i don't have to buy I, I don't buy my computing power by the server i buy it by the cycle so that's right you know all of these lines that i i've dealt with with companies where they they're building out their infrastructure to support more and more customers then they lose a few customers so a bunch of that gear sort of is sitting there waiting for something to do mm-hmm. and then they gain more and we have a breaking point where suddenly i need another rack or this data center is full like to take all those issues off the table and say, I'm only paying for what my customers use today. Yes. That very granular cost of goods kind of purchasing and, of computing. And now you get into a very interesting play for the ISV because you charge customer, you, you provide a service for customers in business service for customers that you, that you charge on a business per- transaction basis flat. Every business transaction mm. has kind of a very similar price. Right. And you have some flexibility in there. Now, there is a computer science aspect that kicks in. The more dense you can make your application, the higher your margin becomes. Dense meaning? Dense meaning the more customer at transactions you can run on fewer resources, I see. the higher your margin becomes because the fewer your, actually, your actual operation expenses towards the data center, in that case towards Microsoft, become. So you want to build a multi-tenant application which runs as many transactions, as many operations as you can yeah. on as little hardware, as a little backend as fewest you can. Fewest number of cycles, fewest number of bytes transferred, fewest number of bytes stored. Yes. That's all money in the bank for you. So, so what you're saying is there's a, there's a, uh, incentive to make more efficient services. Yes. So give you an example, service bus. Um, I'm not going to say how many instances we, we run and how big the deployments are because that's all not so important information in, in the detail numbers. But we just spent a, a whole milestone, actually one and a half milestones, um, optimizing the system, eliminating um, a lot of blocking call paths hmm. where we weren't doing the right thing in 
and it's a computer science kind of thing. Um, Finding ways to reduce chatter. And, yeah, and we want we want to we want to always be on I/O threads, and we never want to go and run into a lock and then leave a thread hanging. Right. So we want to come out of the kernel into the kernel, out of the kernel into the kernel. Everything runs asynchronously mm-hmm. because we're all we want to be we want to be network bound. We don't want to be CPU bound. Right. And we actually found ourselves in some on some call paths CPU bound rather than network bound. So we invested one and a half milestones to people just optimizing call paths, not adding not adding features. We were able to save twenty five percent of our compute of our compute expenses just by that optimization, which means it's an immediate impact on on margin. Sure, once you get all the way down to that utility computing model, that's money in the bank. You've cut costs yes. by writing better code. Yeah. So better code now actually literally does pay off. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. How does an ISV do any kind of a cost-benefit analysis of of cloud uh, computing? Let you know. Let's say you you know what your costs are going to be up front if you're going to be buying all this gear, or your customer is going to be buying all this gear and staffing all these people. But you know how are you how are you going to know like what your cycles are going to be? You know, is there an, is there a scientific way to go about doing that? To actually determining, yes, this will, you know, up to a certain point, this will save us money. Is there a point at which, you know, when I'm doing my analysis, can I determine what that point is of, uh, you know, of usage where, it, you know, where we'll actually end up spending more? I think that's engineering. So I, I don't think I, I don't have a formula that I can give you. Yeah. Um, because it requires that, that seems you know, to be a pretty critical. Yeah, you, you thing need to, to know do. what your application is and does, and I think you need to uh, you need to fully understand what kind of resources you use and how you use them. So it's not only to write an application that is um, reasonably error free and uh, that does what it's supposed to do, but you actually need to know what your application does. And those aren't necessarily things that we we're looking at, and and that's not the kind of telemetry we have in our data centers now. I mean, I'm not, we're not looking at. Cycles and yeah, I think people are not looking at those. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if I look at, we can we can back we can we can we can uh, go back and actually see how how mon- how how diagnosable, how monitorable, how operable current current business applications often are, and if you look at that um, from an operations perspective. They often are not very operable. Some of the tension between developers and and the IT people come from the IT people accusing the developers of not knowing what they're doing, and vice versa. Developer fairies and infrastructure ogres. Yes, <laughs> but once you once you get into a place as we do now, right, as the, the running a service that we're actually both. Yeah, where well, you're now responsible for operations as oh well. Oh boy, that changes your, your entire attitude towards logging. Well, you're, and yeah, you're getting these metrics. You need those metrics to yes. be able to decide what you're going to do next. If, right. if, if, we, if, if we have a catch block and that catch block doesn't have a, 
a, a logging logging statement inside of right. it. That's a that's a very severe foul. Yeah, it's a no no. You, you can't do it, and you need to yield the correct operations uh, operations information. You need to you need to make it actionable. If you throw if you log something that you yet you designate as a as a fatal error or as an error, right? You better know what the operator can do about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So something I feel like on error resume next no longer a good idea. N- no. <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't been a good but, idea so for a long to, time. To get to that point, how do you how do you make that analysis? Right, you, you really need to know what resources you use, and you need to know you need to know what your what your efficiency goals are about mm-hmm. those resources. Is that stuff, and Richard, you might know this. Is that stuff that we can look at just using Perfmon? Yeah, I think there's there's elements of instrumentation here, right? I mean, Perfmon would certainly allow us to look at a given process and say, well, how many bytes are coming out? How many bytes are going in? How much is it consuming internally? But I go back to like, Studio 2010, the, uh, the preemptive guys um, have runtime intelligence, which is all now you're instrumenting at the, at the method level in production for that same reason, right? That I want to see how much time are we spending in those methods? What are we consuming when we do that? Mm-hmm. And, and another element of, of that analysis then becomes the, um, the, the data you get out of the Azure bill, right? Right, yeah. How much did you spend this month? It's a pretty yes. solid measurement. Well, what's weird about this is that, you know, the real, the real benefit of moving to the cloud is on the front end of the process. You know, before you go, when you're starting a new project, before you go and invest in all this equipment and gear and stuff, that's, you know, when it's a good idea because you haven't spent the money yet. You're, mm-hmm. you, but you can only test out and make this kind of analysis if you got the kind of infrastructure that can, where you can actually do that analysis. So, so doesn't it, you know, how do you, how can you possibly analyze stuff, you know, your code that isn't running under a heavy load when there's no place to run it? Well, there's a place to run it. Well, okay. But what I'm saying is that you can't really do a hands-on analysis without investing in some, in some gear. So you can, you can get, you can get, uh, um, a hundred instances of Windows Azure for, uh, an hour for what 12 bucks, right? So you can you can you can do all kinds of analysis of of your of your capacity uh, by leveraging Windows Azure not only as a deployment target but also as a test target. Yeah, as your test vehicle as well. And and that's that's yeah. what we're doing. Like okay. we're our system is being um, tested on top of the Azure platform. When we run our BVT, so our build verification tests, um, when we um, actually verify our daily builds. It's an automated system that we have. I mean, we build a lot of stuff on top of it mm-hmm. where we, we build and then we automatically deploy. We, we stand up a full scale unit of service bus and access control, a full suite of tests, and that's something that just runs automatically. It just auto-deploys. And, and what's runs. fascinating about this is the idea that you know, this standardized test costs this many dollars. Yeah. Right? Utility computing is going to break it down into a, a specific number. Every time we run a test, it costs this. Yeah, but the difference, the difference between the environments that we used to have was we had to fight for, if you go to in, inside of Microsoft, inside of really any company, and you say, oh, I need to do a scale test and I need to have 200 machines. Right. <laughs> yeah. Good yeah. luck with that. Yeah, right. Get in line, buddy. And and now we can we can actually go and say, all right, yep, two hundred boxes, fire it up, do fire it, it up, and just get a build the other and, month. And we we change the numbers in our deployment size, and we just push a button, and it just happens. Do it again, yeah, very compelling. And so that has changed our entire way of how we can go and uh, and and operate our our development process because 
of course, testing and endurance testing and, and continuous, effective continuous integration testing mm-hmm. um, is something that's just core to our process. And um, it, it's, we have so many angles on test. Um, and we're leveraging the Windows Azure environment for that, too. That sounds, sounds like a great idea. And, uh, and I guess, you know, what, what you're saying is that it can be a fixed cost. Yes. Yeah. It's oh, some, I great. mean, that's something you, you, it's, if you, if you run a test lab, mm. that test lab is going to cost you money. Right. And it, running a virtual test lab on top of a cloud platform is actually something that's really, really a good idea. Well, it's, you, you know, what, what it's done is it's clearly surfacing costs. Building out a test lab costs a lot of money, but that gets amortized off in a different way. Yes. It's pretty tough to take that cost and associate it to individual tests. The Azure way, you don't have any upfront costs, really. There's a, there's a small amount. But let's come but back you, to, let's come back to where we started. We mm-hmm. started as an ISV. Right. So, right. so if, if, let's say I wanted to start a company again mm-hmm. at some point, um, and, um, the tendency that I have is, um, I want, would want to build business systems this mm-hmm. time around, right? Not teach developers because I've done that. Right. And probably not build something that for developers as tooling because that's kind of, I've done that. Mm-hmm. So I would be more interested in business systems this, this time around if I, if I did that. Um, you have nothing to announce, however. No, no, no. I have, no, no. And that, on that front, I have absolutely, <laughs> yeah. totally nothing to announce. Yeah. I'm just, as a representative of Clemens Vasters, he has nothing to announce. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> But if so, so if I if I would do this, because just because of the ISV, this whole ISV cloud story is just very compelling. Mm-hmm. So I would be stupid if I wasn't w- wouldn't be wouldn't be thinking broadly about you know what what are you going to do with the rest of your life, right? Um, it, as a business ISV operating at the scale, I would be interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just are a startup, I could I can get a test lab right out of Azure. Right. Instantly. Yes. With no upfront capital investment. I can get a thousand machines if I need to. Mm-hmm. And for the hour you need to run the test. For the hour or two that I need to run the test. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to pay $240 for that. And right. that's fine. And then I'm, then I'm done with it. But I don't need to go and make investments of a million dollars or right. whatever it's going to cost many million dollars actually. Mm-hmm. To stand up the same kind of infrastructure. I was thinking of load testing too. Not only can you run your, you can actually run your servers there, but you can run your clients. Oh that, yes, that so, hit the. So that's another thing that we do. Yeah. We have we have um, our clients, the client set of our tests. Uh, we can scale those up very nicely, and we scale them up. We crank them up until um, this, everything breaks, right? And sometimes we have to spin a lot. Sometimes we don't have to spin as many. Yeah. Um, but we have the sc- we can get the scale, and we can actually leverage all the six data centers that we have, right? Yeah. So we can go we can go into into Dublin, and we can go into Amsterdam, and we can go into Singapore, and we can do it from there. Interesting. Well, we're just about out of time. I know you got to take off too. So, uh, yeah. is there any last minute thing you want to drop on us before we head on out? Um, well, the message to the ISV is, is um, they should learn about, think about how to do multi-tenant systems and so how and 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 think about how to move to the cloud. Um, if you build on top of Microsoft technology, we welcome you on Windows Azure. But if you just run that on some other cloud platform, you know, more power to you. But the, um, yeah, this basic idea of being eliminating those upfront costs and upfront risks, yes, is going to be a distinct advantage to any ISV. And to and if if you don't do it as an ISV, yeah, the guy who's competing gonna. with you will. 
and do some tests. Figure out what it's really going to cost when the yes. when the heat gets put it's, on. Understand what your system's doing. Right. Don't get surprised. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Clemens. Thanks welcome. very much for talking fun. to us. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 